I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to look with you uh, this evening at five verses uh, in this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. This morning, uh, we saw Paul's clear statement about the immaturity of the Corinthian believers. Um, They uh, needed to be fed with milk and not with solid food because they were not ready for discussion of the deeper things of Scripture. And that was not necessarily a problem when they were first converted, right? We have certain expectations for new believers. We wouldn't expect that they would really be prepared to discuss the deeper things of God. But these Corinthians, many of them, had been saved for years and yet hadn't really grown much in their understanding of the wisdom of God. And so that's a problem. And uh, Paul begins to deal with that and take care of that. And he points out their immaturity in verses 1 through 4. Then in uh, the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul gives further characteristics of those who embrace human wisdom. You might ask, what does embracing human wisdom and incorporating it into the church look like? What does it practically look like? And Paul gives at least two large demonstrations of it in chapters 3 and 4. In my opinion, that's what he does for a lengthy portion of time here. You remember that Chloe's people had reported a problem to Paul, that there was contention and division in the church. And so Paul will begin telling them a little bit more about following the world's wisdom and what that looks like. In my opinion, there are two major traits that he will point out in chapters 3, verse 5, through chapter 4 and verse 13. I'll take a moment just to point these two out, and then we'll come back and look at one of them a little bit closer this evening. Uh, First of all, Paul will say in in chapter 3, verse 5, the whole way down to chapter 4 and verse 7, he will say that those who embrace human wisdom and incorporate it into the church exalt human leaders, lifting them to statuses or positions they should never have. That's why I love the song, Who Am I? Who Am I? that was just sung. Paul's got a little different way of asking that question. We'll see that in a moment. But from chapter 3, verse 5, the whole way down to chapter 4 and verse 7, He's concerned to show them that you shouldn't be boasting in human leaders. Matter of fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3, and you look in your Bible at verse 21, he comes right out and he closes this chapter very clearly for them. And there's a lot that will happen between chapter 3 and verse 5 and 321, but notice how he closes. He says, so let no one boast in men. Okay, so this is a, this is a, a section where Paul elaborates what exalting human wisdom looks like, and it means that we exalt human leaders. And so Paul says you can't do that. You can't boast in men. But the section isn't done there, and if you look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, I think that he has a few other things to say, but then he brings it back to that conclusion again. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Why? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They shouldn't make too much out of Apollos. 
They shouldn't make too much out of Paul. And any person who's able to do anything good has received that ability from God. It's his giftedness. And so we should not boast in men. My opinion just after that then, in in verses 8 through 13 of chapter uh, 4, Paul gives a second characteristic of what it looks like, or trait of what it looks like to embrace human wisdom and bring it into the church. And I would summarize this one. We'll get there in a few weeks, but let me just give it to you. Um, Those who embrace human wisdom in the church are well accepted by the world, comfortable, and unwilling to endure much suffering for the cause of Christ. Just look down with me at chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, already you have all you want, already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. The Corinthians are well accepted by the world. They're comfortable. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has, has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor but we in disrepute. We could keep reading, but Paul in verses 8 through 13 will close this second characteristic of those who embrace human wisdom in the church by saying that these sort of people are comfortable, accepted by the world, and they're unwilling to endure much suffering or ridicule for the cause of Christ. The Corinthian assembly is not much like Paul and some of the other apostles who are enduring suffering for the cause of Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, he will end with a strong confrontation about boasting in human wisdom. So let's go back up to chapter 3 and verse 5 this evening. And let's look at that first trait. We'll just begin to deal with it today. Those who embrace human wisdom or exalt human wisdom lift human leaders to lofty positions. Here we might think, well, you know, Paul's been kind of saying this and you've been saying this, but this is a, the largest treatment that he gives here. Of these two traits, this one is by far longer. And so he's demonstrating here that people who function in a merely human way, on a human plane, on this horizon, tend to focus their attention and their boasting on human people. I remember years ago hearing one person say they lift leaders to icon status. So uh, Paul will begin to deal with this. And the way that he responds to this problem is he gives them first two reminders of which we'll only see one this evening. The first reminder he gives to the Corinthian church who uh, tend to boast in either he or Apollos is that all human leaders of the church are servants of God who cannot produce fruit left to themselves. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. 
Here, I I think that Paul is going to remind them that the leaders of the church are simply servants of God. I like to divide verses 5 through 9 up into four four parts or sections. And each one has something to to do with describing Paul and Apollos as leaders in the church. Uh, The first point is he describes the insignificance of human leaders in the church in verse 5. And to me, there are two indications that Paul is turning his attention now away from the different groups that would rally behind the leaders to the leaders themselves, okay? The first indication, he uses a word of transition, and the word is then, okay? But the second indication of this is the questions that he asks in verse 5. And so since he's turning attention not just to the groups but to the leaders, he is specifically drawing attention to the function of these men not their human personalities. Okay, well, you say, well, how do you know that, preacher? I say, you know it by the very first question that he asks. What? Uh, some translations have tried to smooth this out a little bit, and they translate it, who is Paul, and who is Apollos? But I prefer what? Because it is a neuter interrogative pronoun. You say, but I, I can't remember any of that stuff from grade school, or whenever we learned that, right? But this is an important point, because uh, Paul does not say, you know, tell me more about Paul and Apollos. Who are they? Give me more about their identity or personality. He asks specifically, what are they? What function do they perform? Now, he's not trying to offend Apollos in some way or another. As if Apollos walked in the room, he says, what is that? He's not denying his human personality but he's trying to draw attention to their function. They are simply servants. He answers it there with this word, servants. This word would describe uh, deacons in some texts, but this word simply speaks of the insignificance of the apostles. If the Corinthians would be tempted to answer that question, what is Paul, what is Apollos, they might say apostles. But Paul says, no, 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 what you need to, the way you need to think about this, we need to reorient your thinking as a church. You need to think of them as low-level servants. I liked how Leon Morris described the word servants here. I think it's very helpful. He said this term originally meant table waiter. That's going back to Acts chapter 6. Table waiter. It came to be used of lowly service generally. The term stresses the lowly character of the service rendered and ridicules the tendency to make much out of preachers. He closes by asking, who would set servants on a pedestal for worship or praise? Okay, so Paul uses this word servants. It's a word that is speaking of the insignificance of these apostles. And so uh, one of the things we need to know about them, of course, is the nature of their ministry. That moves us then into verse 6. And in verse 6, I think he begins to describe not just the insignificance of these apostles and human leaders in the church, he describes the differences among them. And I see differences among them in the very first part of verse 6. Look down in your Bible at verse 6. Paul says, I planted an Apollos water. I think a little bit later on, he'll return to some differences between these apostles. But here, he describes that they performed different ministries in the church. 
after establishing the insignificance of these leaders, he says, Paul planted. What does it mean when it says that Paul planted? I think this is a figurative way to describe Paul's ministry at first in Corinth when he shared the gospel with them, when they believed and when a church was started. Matter of fact, uh, turn in your Bibles for a moment. Keep your hands here. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 18. I want you to see the text that describes the church plant visit of Paul the Apostle. So Paul's describing different uh, differences between him and Apollos, and one of them is the nature of their ministry in Corinth when the church was planted. In Acts 18, Paul went by himself to plant the church, and I just want to read a portion of this for you. Look at Acts 18 and verse 1. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. We're thankful for that verse because it tells us Paul's occupation. And he reasoned, notice what he does, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, He's ministering first to the Jewish people in the Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I mean, Paul is planting. Okay, so what does planting look like? He's occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews uh, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I love that part of the church plan visit. Uh, The King James translates it, his house was joined hard to the synagogue. And what might be the case is that Uh, The house of this man and the synagogue may have shared the same roof, even. And so picture Paul here. He's ministering to the Jewish people. He's telling them that Jesus is the Christ. And then the Jews begin to reject, or some of the Jews begin to reject him. He says, okay, that's it. I'm leaving, and I'm going and ministering to the Gentiles. And so he leaves, and he walks right next door, and he starts ministering to the Gentiles. You see a little bit of the tenacity of the apostle Paul, right? But, but notice that many of the Jews reject him and his gospel. Uh, verse 7, and he left there and went to the house. Oh, I'm sorry, I just read, read that. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So there was some success in the synagogue. Together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What does planting look like? And I would say it looks like that right there. As Paul goes down into the streets of Corinth, when he goes, there are no believers in Jesus Christ. He shares the gospel. Now many are believing and are being baptized or added to the church. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio proconsul of Achaia, um, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, verse twelve, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and brought him before the tribunal, saying, 
This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and of your own law, see you to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these things. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. We'll stop reading there for a moment, but stay in Acts 18. Okay, so if I were to describe the nature of Paul's planting ministry, it's him sharing Jesus Christ, testifying to both Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Messiah. Many people are believing and becoming baptized, and yet there's much opposition. Who's opposing Paul here? The Jews, right? They're opposing him. He leaves, but then that's not good enough. They try to bring him before Gallio, the governor of Corinth, and they're trying to get him in trouble. But he continues to minister there and so on. Okay, well, Paul leaves Ephesus, or Corinth, and goes to Ephesus, but then look down at verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He's in Ephesus, not Corinth here, okay? But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, well, they had left with Paul from Corinth, had gone to Ephesus, now they hear this preacher. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. Who's he? Apollos. When Apollos wants to go to Achaia, specifically, he's going to go to Corinth. The brothers in Ephesus encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, where? Achaia. What city in, in particular? Well, look at Acts 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth. Okay, so... When he arrives in Achaia, or in Corinth, notice what he does. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So if you're to ask me, what does it mean in 1 Corinthians when it says, Paul planted, he primarily involved in the ministry of evangelism, although he did teach them in the Word. He was there a year and a half. People are being saved and baptized, hence added to the church of Corinth. But then Apollos comes along, He had a little problem in his theology. Two elderly people help him out. But then he goes to Corinth, and he begins ministering there, and he greatly helps those who through grace had believed. How does he help them? Well, just keep reading. It's right in your Bible. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what was the nature of Apollos' watering ministry in Corinth? He's encouraging them. He's giving them greater confidence. And in particular, he's going after perhaps some of the same Jews who had rejected Paul and had tried to drive him out of the city. And he's powerfully refuting from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so you can imagine in Corinth, that there would be people 
who would be loyal to the ministry of Paul the Apostle. He led them to Christ. But then there might be other people who would say, but boy, Apollos. Man, like when he went through the scriptures, like the Jews had nothing to say. And so 1 Corinthians 3 in your Bible is designed by God to teach a church how to properly think about two leaders who had become objects of their pride and their boasting. And so one of the things Paul will say, you can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is not only to describe the insignificance of these leaders, they're just servants, servants of God, but then to also describe that there are legitimate differences among them. There are differences among them. I planted, that's what God called me to do, an Apollos watered. Okay? He also describes differences in the rewards that these leaders would receive for their ministry. If you go to the end of verse 8, I think you see this. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. It says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his own labor. Here I think he's emphasizing a difference between ministers of the gospel or Christian ministers of the gospel is that every man will receive different rewards based upon or in accordance with the sort of work that he performs on this earth. And I think that the reality is that some of us will be empowered by God to accomplish great things for his glory while others may not do much for the cause of Christ and hence not receive much for the cause of Christ. And so I think that what he's saying in the end of verse 8 is there's a legitimate difference in reward according to the different labors of the ministers of the gospel on this earth. I always loved William Carey's statement. Perhaps you've used it before. Uh, He said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. You ever heard that before? And I think I understand the nature of what Carey was addressing in the journal that he wrote. He says, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. I think he's describing that, you know, if we will engage in difficult ministry that might be impossible, we can expect enablement or blessing from God, help on this earth. But there's a sense in which you could take Carey's statement even a bit farther, right? He says, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. That could be in reference as well to the future reward of Christian ministers of the gospel. To attempt great or impossible things from God, and we should expect to get great things from him. Of course, what will we do with those things in heaven? The Bible clearly demonstrates that when believers get rewards, we lay them at the feet of Christ. Because he's the one who enabled all of that anyway. And so as we're going through this text, Paul's working through the differences between different leaders in the church. He describes the insignificance of all of them, their differences, and then in verse 8, the first part of that verse, he describes the unity of human leaders in the church. The unity. He who plants and he who waters are one. They are of the same source, perhaps. Um, Are one is actually kind of a difficult phrase to really understand exactly what he's getting at. I think, you know, in a sense, he's basically saying uh, they're of one source, or they're on one team, or, you know, something. 
like that. Whatever the specific meaning is here, Paul generally wishes to articulate the great unity that leaders in the church must enjoy. So Paul and Apollos are allies and friends in ministry, and the Corinthians need to keep this in mind. They're not rivals, right? They're colleagues. They're to work together to build up other believers for the glory of God. The beauty of God's plan as I see it is that uh, God calls different men and women to minister with differing gifts to the same groups of people sometimes for the honor and the glory of God. And so he stresses the unity of human leaders. And then, really, perhaps the biggest part of this text, and I've been kind of skipping it all along the way and saving it for the end, is I think that the primary point of this text is for Paul to emphasize what I would call the empowerment of human leaders in the church. The empowerment of human leaders in the church. And I see this at the beginning of the text, in the middle of the text, and at the end of the text. Okay? At the beginning of the text, I didn't say anything about this little phrase in um, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, their servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Okay, so they're all doing their different things, but we have to remember that behind the scenes, God is the one who called and appointed these men to do what they're doing in the church. So you see an emphasis beginning here on the Lord. But then in verses 6 and 7, uh, the end of verse 6, you see that God is the source of all spiritual growth. Here in the middle of the text, he says, but God gives the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I mean, twice here for emphasis, Paul's point is, although although Paul and Apollos have been faithful, and they've used their gifts, they ministered to the church at different times in their existence, the one who, who provided the growth all along the way was God. And so Paul begins a great emphasis on the role of God the Father in producing things in Corinth. That leads to, in verse 9, at the end of the text, a very strong emphasis on God again. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. There's definitely much you could emphasize in this text. It's important to see that Paul and Apollos were faithful co-workers with God. Okay, so they're laboring together with God. But that Paul puts this strong emphasis on God himself, by describing then the church at Corinth as God's fielding, field and God's building. I think that the field imagery that's used here portrays the, Cor- the church of Corinth like a fertile place or piece of land that is awaiting the blessing of God. I think this image might bring to mind for the Corinthians some of the fertile fields on the plains outside of the city. The city itself was a very dry Mediterranean city. But outside of the city, there were plains that were well known for the production of grapes. They're very fertile fields. So it might bring that imagery to mind. And, and as Paul has been describing himself and Apollos as one who's planting and one who's watering, it's very natural to describe the church then as a field awaiting 
the blessing of God. But he describes them as God's field. And then God's building, I think that that is an imagery that's preparing for the temple that we're going to see in the very next section. Next section, in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, you are God's temple. And it's important to know that in chapter 3, you is you plural. The church collectively is the temple of God. Uh, So look down in your Bible at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in in you? I think he's describing the church as a whole being the temple of God. And then verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy or separate and you are that temple. So the building analogy that I think he uses in this text, you are God's building, I think, is preparing the way for the fact that the church as a whole can be seen as God's temple. However, the great emphasis of this passage is on God. Let me translate verse 9 for you literally and woodenly. I mean, this will not make any Bible. Okay, no one's going to want to translate it this way. Okay, but if I were to translate it, you could translate it this way. We are fellow workers of God. You are a field of God. You are a building of God. See, in verse 9, everything is of God. Okay, this whole text is theocentric in its emphasis. Everything's of God. The, The apostles are servants of God. The church is of God in many different ways. And the point he's making throughout the text is apostles are simply servants who cannot produce fruit left to themselves. God is the one who does and has done great things for the church. Now, tragically, when we attach great importance to any one human leader of the church, you know who gets ripped off from his glory? God. And so Paul's, Paul's saying, okay, if you're going to divide up after different apostles, let me just be really clear with you. Let me explain to you who these guys are. They're servants. And let me also be clear about this. The one who did good things in Corinth all along the way was God. He's the one. I mean, any farmer can stick a plant into the ground, and he can water it, but nothing will happen unless God does it. And that's the point that he's making in this text. So we cannot boast in any one human leader within the body of Christ. It will cause us to undermine the ministry of God. Instead, I would pray that as a church, we would be like John the Baptist. Wish I could have heard from Pastor James this evening. I'm looking forward to hearing from him when he's healthy again in a few weeks. I remember the last sermon he preached. You remember that? It's a great text of Scripture. Let me invite you to close with me by turning over to John 3 for a minute. John 3, as James was preaching through that text, this stuck out to me again. I mean, I'd seen portions of this before. But I think this should be what our servants are known for in this assembly. Whether the servant is standing here, whether the servant is out there, this is how servants of Christ should respond. Look with me at John 3, verse 25. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That sounds like 1 Corinthians 4. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I imagine the disciples coming to John, the disciples of John coming to him, wanting to make much out of him. Maybe we should feature you a little bit more. You know, I remember a day, John, when you were baptizing, and there was not just like one row of crowds on the brink of the river. It was like two or three. They were up on the hill. Remember that, John? But now all these people are going over to this other guy, Jesus. And they're all flooding over there. Perhaps they want to make more out of John the Baptist. They're in our contemporary world today. They might say something, we need to make more out of our preacher. I got it. Let's feature him more pre- pre- predominantly on our website. Right? Put a picture of him on like every place. Or better yet, let's give him his own website. You know, johnthebaptist.com. And then we'll make something out of him. And that'll be a way for our church to grow. Or we'll put him on the radio or you know, fill in the blanks. Conferences. Things are declining around here. Everyone's going elsewhere. What should we do? John, you must increase. John's answer is no. No. He must increase. And I must decrease. If there's one person who is to receive the glory and the praise and our admiration, our confidence, and our boasting, it's Jesus Christ and God the Father. For any good thing that has ever occurred at Colonial Baptist Church, whether it was in the planting ministry of Pastor Keith Davey, or the planting or watering ministry of Pastor Daniel Davey, was the work of God. And may he be honored and glorified by the way we point others to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this good reminder that all of us are servants servants. And we serve with our gifts that you've given to us as you've assigned to us in this assembly. Lord, we pray that you would protect this church from ever exalting human leaders to positions or statuses they should not have. And we pray most importantly, Lord, that we would be good at pointing other people to you. May we give you all the praise and glory for what you do in our assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.